welcome everyone to another episode of Pokey Science. We have Don and Chris with you as always. And this week we are talking a episode we have talked about for a long while. It just took uh, took a bit for Lucas to find someone that he wanted to talk to. Uh, but we are talking about whether, and Lucas has a wonderful interview uh, that he conducted. And Don and I are just here to hit you all with some news. He absolutely crushed the last one he did. What was the last, wait, what was the last one he did? Sharks? Sharks, yeah, yeah. This, this is the third one because he did the, uh, he did Volcano and he did Sharks. Both have been wonderful, wonderful interviews. So I, uh, I'm sure you all are going to love this one and everything Lucas and our wonderful guest have for you. So Don, let's just jump right into the news. In science news, Don, how big can a goldfish get? Honestly, I've seen some some big ones, like two, three pounders, um, both at the fish store, and I've seen a few um, ones that have been introduced uh, illegally into like the water systems in Florida. Yeah, like I've seen some real big ones. Well, they've got some real big ones up in Burnsville, Minnesota. Because, like you said, this uh, some had been introduced into the wild, uh, it sounds like, from people just releasing their pet goldfish. Yeah, goldfish get a lot bigger, and they live a lot longer than people expect when they're properly cared for. This, the ones they found, they said they found one as big as a football. Oh, I believe it, absolutely. But they are being an invasive species in Keller Lake, and they are, uh, I guess they're they're really messing with the ecosystem because they are is it not bottom feeders but they like churn up a lot of so the, the dirt yeah they, they'll stir up um they'll stir up like the substrate they can smother uh fish nests and they um they eat they're very aggressive herbivores so um they can overeat the plants in the lake yeah and they they have just been it sounds like they've just been like wrecking havoc on this lake and they just keep fishing out these football-sized goldfish. I never would have thought of goldfish as an invasive species, but that's probably part of the problem. Yeah, they're pretty... Um, I think they're present in quite a few states. It's a, it says that to reach that size, the goldfish will have had to have been in the lake for several years. Oh, absolutely. Fish can grow a lot larger. So um, gold, uh, goldfish are established in 16 of the uh, continental United States. Oh, like in the wild? Yes. I would, like, if I was just out fishing and I caught a giant goldfish, I don't know if I would be, like, scared. Or well, the thing is, like, goldfish, like, you can catch them fishing, and people do, but they're not, it's not the most common catch because, um, like, typically when you're fishing, you're fishing for a predatory fish, and goldfish are herbivores, so, like, they typically won't hit your average bass lure. So they're hard to catch. Yeah, unless you target them. I think you'd probably throw out a piece of bread and you'd catch a goldfish if they were around. So the old duck strategy absolutely just like a duck it says that they caught 10 goldfish in a week and another 18 uh so they got 28 in two weeks in this one lake it's a good bit of goldfish i guess the, the psa for this is if you have a goldfish don't flush it or yeah don't toss it just know what know how big your pets get and then choose accordingly yeah so that's the psa for for this week don so you have a big pokemon update for us yeah, so we have our new rule set. We are looking at Series 10, ladies and gentlemen. Back to the old days. Kind of. For now, at least, we're looking at um, a single restricted per team, and Dynamax is gone. So if you started playing in Sword and Shield, um, 
I mean, it's kind of welcome to the old days, I guess. It'll be yeah. a little different. It's it is a little different for me because this is yeah. You, it's you're, you're this is really your first year foraying into competitive the competitive side, right? Yeah. Well, that's I never played uh, VGC until Sword and Shield, so I was started with Dynamax. It's unfortunate that the the world's timing happened to be how it was because I feel like Sword and Shield was like really approachable to new people. Mm-hmm. And um, like our first our early events, we had a ton of uh, new players like showing up. Yeah. Well, I, like it's not. I don't think it was that like, and I don't think it was that it was like easier but i think the dynamaxing aspect no i i was saying just the game as a whole in terms of like getting getting yeah. uh battle quality pokemon a lot was much more approachable no and i think dynamax has been like maybe the most meta shifting individual mechanic ever arguably yeah. so i feel like um that it's like it's like it's like a crazy thing to have to like you know it was crazy to learn but we all sort of learned it together and now it's gonna be different um doing it for the first time without it for people that haven't done it before it's gonna be an interesting shift. I think that Max Airstream was a pretty big crutch for people. Max Airstream was a very ridiculous move, and I'm sure if we get it back, it'll continue to be a ridiculous move. And so I think I think that's honestly probably the biggest shift is getting speed control uh, without Airstream as a viable option. I think that, and I think certain uh, maybe like more. Not like not per se hyper offense, but things like Xerneas. I think Xerneas is way better now than it was oh, yeah. with Dynamax allowed because it didn't really gain a whole lot from Di- the Dynamax boost off of its base moves. Mm-hmm. But um, the the bulk gain its opponent would now have, I think, was a huge like dividend. Yeah. Um, to its opponent, so I think Xerneas is definitely back in the top tops of the restricted. Zacian's obviously still extremely good. Really liking Kyogre. I'm sure Groudon Venusaur is going to be around as well. And then we'll see. I've, I've yeah. seen uh, Calyrex Ghost Rider. Like, I've seen less of it than I thought I would. But I think it's going to show up in a bit. I've seen actually seen more Spectrier than Ghost Rider. I mean, Spectrier doesn't take your... You can still run a different Restricted then, so that's kind of nice. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've only been messing around a little bit. But I like it because, personally, I feel like it's a little bit more forgiving of... Like if you if you miss like miscall something on a Dynamax move, you're toast. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like one, you can't Dynamax your way out of a bad situation, but at the same time, your opponent can't Dynamax themselves out of a bad situation. Yeah, I th- I think I think you can run. You, I think you can run it a bit bulkier. Yeah, because you don't have to worry about like oh well, what if you know there's Cinderace, Urshifu, Max Knuckle, Wicked blows me. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that I'm not using Urshifu in any of the groups that I've built because I have loved Urshifu, and now you cannot stop him with Protect. Yeah, no, Urshifu's definitely really good now. Um, being unprotectable is pretty sick. Well, the, the bit of news I had is is part of the... Well, one, we have the big Pokemon Go Fest this weekend. It'll be a good time, good time. The Pokemon Go app, as part of it, released the stats for the most buddied Pokemon. This is cool, actually. I was really, really interested to learn this. Well, do you have any guesses? You don't. I mean, if you want to try to give top five, but who would you think would be the top five for buddies? Let's say I'd imagine some of the dragons that are hard to get eggs for would be top, top up there. Okay. So maybe like the Garchomp line, like one of them. Where are some of those four hundred egg bad boys? Ah, I feel like everyone's got a Gyarados by now, though. That really wants Gyarados. That's that might be out. Yeah, I, I'd say definitely Garchomp might be one of them. I'll say also Gumi and Dino lines. I feel like both of those lines are pretty like hard to get a lot of good eggs for. 
Mm-hmm. And then we'll say Mewtwo okay. and Wild Card will go to Charmander. Okay. So your thinking is pretty pretty good. One thing you did not consider is community days. That's right. That's so, right. It makes sense. So Garchomp did have a community day, and I bet if it didn't, it would be on the list. It's not. But there is a dragon, and it's also a 400 uh, egg evolution. So you had the right thinking. You just didn't get it. But which dragon is that one? Oh, Altaria? Noibat. I forgot that thing was 400. Noibat, and also Noibat, like, came in and just, like, disappeared. Like, you maybe got one. Yeah, that's right. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't even think about Noibat. Which, honestly, RIP to, to it and its evolution. I feel like they're such an overlooked dragon type, and they're sort of outclassed at everything. Yeah. They're cool, though. And they're, I thought Noibat was, or Noivern was awesome in... Uh, they were cool for, like, one year, but Aerodactyl was also legal, and now there's things like Aleki, and, like, now that, yeah. you know, Tailwind is, like, prankster tailwind takes effect that turn there's like way less of a reason to use a tailwind mod that's not prankster yeah but the uh the you you said you said there's no gyarados number five is magikarp and it still is i assume okay i I will say i don't know if we talked about the um the florida magikarp bump since it's just all water here yeah i i had like nine gyarados within the first year of not even trying to like have Gyarados. No, it's it's Mag- Magikarp was five, Gyarados was four. Like it really? was, it, yeah, it was in the, but they were two of the top five. I would, I, yeah, this is just, I guess, Florida privilege here with all of the aquatic biomes. I assumed everyone had a pile of Gyarados by now. So Noibat was number three. Number two, you got Mewtwo. Bam. Number one, you're gonna hate yourself for not getting. It's not Pikachu. It's not Pikachu. Is it a, uh, is it like an OG like one fifty or? Oh yeah, it's a one fifty or. Meowth. It is the topic of an upcoming episode we are probably going to be doing. Oh god, I don't. You know I don't read the show notes. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's Eevee. Oh my god, I should have thought about Eevee. I forgot like how tedious it is to get all the evolutions and then multiple copies of them and go. Get all the copies, all the candies, all that, especially with. Sylveon, you have to get all the hearts for, and uh, Umbreon and Espeon, you have to walk. Yeah, I completely forgot that. Honestly, yeah, Eevee makes the most sense out of all of them. I can't believe I just totally overlooked all the mechanics with it. I thought that was a cool little, uh, cool little stat for the game. Okay, so at this point, we're going to turn it over to Lucas and our guest Joe. One note uh, that that uh, Joe wanted to make after doing the recording, uh, he references uh, Cumulonimbus clouds, um, but he wanted to. Uh, he wanted to express that uh, it should be Cumulonimbus Mamatus, making them the mother of all clouds. Uh, so just keep that in mind when you're listening. And on that note, we'll hand it over to Lucas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another interview here on Poke Science. It's me, Veteran Lucas. Hope you guys are having another fantastic day or night. Now, with me, um, I was able to actually find a really cool weather expert, and he's with us today. Um, everyone say hi to Joe Merchant. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How about you? You know, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, again, with all these interviews, it's fun talking to you guys, but with time zones, it is now 9 a.m., so I'm an early bird at this point. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's I guess, 7 p.m. here in Texas, so uh, I'm, I'm wide awake. <laughs> perfect, perfect. At least one of us should be. 
So, <laughs> Joe, uh, can you please tell the people who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is uh, Joe Merchant. I'm a meteorologist. I work for the National Weather Service here in Lubbock, Texas, and I have interests outside of just uh, my my job as a meteorologist for the National Weather Service. I am also uh, doing research with with a shark scientist in Massachusetts, trying to show a correlation between the weather and where sharks uh, tend to migrate toward. Oh, that's cool. How, how's that coming along? It's uh, slower than I sometimes would like. Science <laughs> takes a lot of time, um, but we are, we've been working together for about five years now. And I think we're, we're on the uh, verge of, of showing a, a really strong connection between, between uh, the surface winds and where sharks go to feed near, near shore. All right. So how does one get to studying the weather? Do you just sit at 10 years old and just watch the Weather Channel and be like, that, I want to do that? I would say that that is the case for a lot of meteorologists that I encounter, uh, you know, that I've encountered over the years. I actually sort of came into it a little bit later in life. I wasn't, you know, I, I, the only time I ever really paid attention to the weather when I was a kid was whether or not it canceled, you know, my sporting events, whether or not I you know, whether my baseball game was canceled or not, or, or school was going to be canceled. Uh, but when I got older, I went into the Air Force, they gave me the job as a weather observer. And then when I got out of the Air Force, I continued to be a weather observer at different airports. And so when I decided to go to college, I figured, well, the thing I know the most about at this point seems to be the weather. And uh, so I started and it was really difficult, and I figured, well, after each subsequent year, I'll, I'll stick with it, and ended up uh, choosing it as a as a career path. That's so cool. And uh, thank you for your service, by the way. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Now, one of the things I always like to talk about when it comes to anyone bringing up weather, again, with I, I'm from Florida, so the, talking about the weather is kind of like talking about alligators. It's going to come up, uh, but <laughs> uh, I did want to kind of give people the difference of what exactly is weather. And what exactly is climate? Because the two get mixed up so many times. And I just want to give people a good definition. Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's really important that people understand this, that, that the weather is what happens on an hourly or daily basis. So, you know, the fact that, you know, you get tornadoes one day in Oklahoma doesn't mean that you're going to have uh, tornadoes every day over a 30-year period, right? So the difference between weather and climate is the weather is, is how it changes on a day-to-day -day basis. Climate is how it changes over a 30-year over a period, right? So we use averages when, when meteorologists talk about the average temperature for this day. That is an average of the temperature on that date over a 30-year period. So there's a lot of ups and downs that go into that. So just because it's cold on a day, you know, say it's 70 degrees on a day where the average is 92, well, the, that average of 92 comes from a 30-year uh, database. Whereas, you know, for that day where there, when it's 70 and there's uh, thunderstorms and rain and clouds keeping the temperature from going up, that is just, that is the weather. That is just how it changed on that day. Gotcha. Okay. Get, again, when it comes to it, a lot of people have bring up like, oh no, everything's fine. It, listen, the weather is cold today, which means that the climate, everything is probably fine. 
And as we both know, not always the case. Right. And, and so, you know, it, it, unfortunately, you know, th- there's one joke sort of that's out there when it, whenever it's uh, cold on a summer day or really hot on a winter day, people will be, oh, what about global warming, you know? And, and it, you know, it, it's obviously sort of a, as a meteorologist, it, it can be a frustrating question, you know, because people generally are just kidding by that. Unfortunately, politicians have taken that a little bit farther to put some bad science and bad information out there. Yeah. But uh, for the most part, people, you know, when, when you explain it to them properly, people seem to get it. I did notice that you have, again, you've collected weather data, you've distributed to help out sharks and other people. Uh, what economic impacts does actually collecting weather data give to the rest of us? How does it help us as humans from a dollar sign, not just from a science side? Sure. Well, so here in the United States, we're a little bit unique. Um, you know, the weather, all weather data collected is, is paid for by, by tax dollars from, uh, from U.S. residents, right? So we are actually the, uh, the, the National Weather Service is in the Commerce Department. And a lot of people probably aren't aware of that. And the reason for that is because of the service that we provide you know, we, we protect life and property, right? So that's, that's the mission statement for meteorologists in the National Weather Service. So we're, the most important thing that we do is issue severe thunderstorm warnings, severe uh, or, or tornado warnings, along with hurricane watches, a hurricane warnings. You know, as meteorologists in the National Weather Service, we're all trained to do that type of thing, which is first to protect life, but second to protect property. And part of that Part of protecting property is providing a service to farmers across the country about, you know, about their day to day weather. And, you know, for instance, you know, hail can be, um, uh, you know, really destructive to crops. But more importantly, you know, whether or not we're going to get rain. Right. So um, so we're we're a big we 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 had we had a lot of value to what our agriculture is doing across the country. And all of our data is, is free to the world. Uh, we have no, you know, within the National Weather Service, we don't have any secret data, no secret models. Everything that I use, now you, you might need to be a meteorologist to go find it online <laughs> uh, and, and have some, you know, have some sort of, you know, maybe a, a higher understanding of where this data may be. But all of the data that we use is free and available to anybody across the globe. That's, uh, I didn't, like, I honestly had no idea that we actually distribute. It makes sense what it's called the National Weather Service that our taxes pay for. But the fact that it's actually there for everybody is wild. Absolutely. Knowledge should be shared. That's amazing. Thank you, guys. Yeah, it's, um, I wish more people sort of knew that and understood it. For instance, uh, there's a big weather model uh, that, people will will reference in the world of meteorology. It's called the European model or the e- ECMWF. And it's a global- I've seen that for hurricanes. I've seen that for hurricanes, right? Sure. Yeah, it, 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 it's widely known for uh, Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy because it did a very good job forecasting that storm in particular. It, I mean, it does a very good job overall. Um, and it did a particularly good job with that storm, which which was a little unexpected. The turn back to the west and onshore, and so, but that that is actually a private corporation that owns that. 
And it's a consortium of, of pri private industry and public money in Europe. And it's a very good forecast model, but it is not free. And so if you go online, they, they'll give you, say, the first 72 hours and, and, you know, and then maybe the back end to, you know, maybe 180 hours out. But in between, you can't get. Whereas our forecast models uh, that the U.S. produces on their supercomputers, it is all free to the world. Again, thanks. That I, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't your idea to do it, but I'm still going to thank you for it. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, it's good information to know. I think it's important that people know that. Yeah. On the note of good information, I kind of want to flip it to almost bad information because we are going to be talking about Pokemon later. And one of the things in Pokemon you see that kind of happens in movies and TV shows and pop up articles is that you talk about controlling the weather. This has been something mankind has talked about since ancient times of being able to change the weather to fit what you want. Is that becoming more of a reality or that's still in science fiction where we just get the weather we're dealt? Well, so um, and I, I'm not sure that you were aware of this uh, going into this interview, but I actually am an experienced uh, meteorologist when it comes to cloud seeding. Uh, my really? oh, so yeah. Wow. I'm lucky. Hooray. Yeah. So my very first job uh, out of my uh, undergrad studies was working on a cloud seeding project out here in West Texas. And so we would um, we would fire silver iodide flares into the updraft of convective thunderstorms. And when when it's done properly, when it's done targeted and it's done properly like that, it absolutely works. You can you can see it. You can see the uh, results instantaneously. And so the analogy that uh, that we used when presenting this information and it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's one that makes sense uh, to the general public is, you know how they say that we only use 10% of our uh, brain power, right? Yeah, that, um, that weird myth. Yeah, yeah. And so we, uh, uh, a convective thunderstorm or just a thunderstorm really is only about 10% efficient in producing rainfall. So... Um, and so what the goal of, of targeted cloud seeding, like I used to do, is to basically increase that efficiency up to about 20%. So you just get a little bit more rainfall out of that thunderstorm than you would have otherwise gotten if you didn't seed it. Now, there's, there's bad science being done on this on the other end. Um, from, uh, you know, from, and again, this is somewhat anecdotal. It's not, I am not a, an expert, I guess, on how the how the how China does their cloud seeding, but from everything I've read, they're not really using the scientific method uh, to approach it. It, it is uh, it is more of a sort of um, a, an arm of influence over the population that they're capable of doing it. Uh, and if you go back to the 2008 um, uh, Olympic Games in Beijing, they they claimed that they were going to be able to rid themselves of the smog. Uh, that occurred during that. And that is, uh, you know, I'd have to look at the science behind that. It, uh, it's unlikely that their methods are effective when it comes to, uh, to, to cloud seeding in that way, because it, on a larger scale, it's, it's almost impossible to do because uh, the large scale atmosphere, it takes a lot of uh, energy to change anything on, on a, on a large scale within the atmosphere. So when you, 
put it on a smaller scale, just one singular thunderstorm, it can actually really make a big difference. All right. So yeah, the, ch- the technology that we all have, America, China, and Europe, isn't so drastically different. So it's, if we can't do it, it's very likely that somebody else can't do it either. Right, especially on a large scale. Uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the methodology um, is, is probably, you know, the scientific method, when, when, a, when you apply the scientific method to it, it really needs to be done on a smaller scale, not on a large scale. Gotcha. So I did want to talk, let's go back to the smaller scale, because this is something that frustrates the average Floridian Texan, just about anyone when it comes to weather. Whenever you see the percentage of precipitation and you see that it's a 60% chance of rain, how am I supposed to calculate that? Because again, some people will go out, they'll read the weather report, they'll go out and pick the wrong weather outfit, and then they just get angry at the meteorologist. Uh, And it might... I mean, I don't think it's the meteorologist's fault, but what? how exactly should I read this, and should I get an umbrella? So if, if I were in Florida or Texas and I saw a 60% chance of rain that day, I would bring an umbrella because what, what they're saying is that wherever you click on the map, uh, so we have this, you know, our, our internal systems have this very uh, sophisticated high resolution gridded map, right? Mm-hmm. And so we put all the information in from, from, the, from the public models that are available to everybody. We put all of that information into these systems that we use. And when the forecast is spit out to the public on our website, when you click on a map, what will happen is, uh, say you click on your hometown and it says you have a 60% chance of rain that means that there is a 60% chance that there that it will rain within a 25 mile radius of the point in which you click okay so that that makes a lot more sense instead of just saying again it's so weird to think like this blanket term 6 we we see almost like 60% of the chance that it's going to happen like anywhere it's like right. no it, all, there's yeah. Been- yeah like it's all across texas or something right uh <laughs> And, and I think that, again, that, that is an issue. You know, it, we, we always try and message all of this stuff better, uh, you know, but, you know, there is, a, there is sort of a point of, of uh, or what is it, the uh, return on investment, right? The ROI yes. of, of putting in all, all this information out there. Uh, you know, a lot of people, if they're really interested and really curious, they'll, they'll find out sort of the nuances of stuff like that. But it is hard to understand. And, and the other part is, well, there's also when, when there's a 60 percent chance of rain, that also means there's a 40 percent chance it won't rain. And, mm. you know, that's basically a coin flip. That makes sense. It does make on that sense. But I do want to talk again with it. If we're talking about people being skeptical of the weather, we do also have to talk about climate change and something I think that everyone should keep talking about until we're on the point where instead of debating what whether climate change is real, we should be debating on how to tackle it. So how does climate change affect the weather? Like, again, we've talked a little bit about how you'll get hot summers and cool, like super hot summers and super cold winters. And people keep throwing around global warming as the term. Can you help break that apart a little bit? Absolutely. So one, uh, and in fact, I'll give you an anecdotal story about a friend of mine who's a meteorologist. 
you know, years ago was a little skeptical of the of sort of what is, you know, some people consider a narrative of climate change, where I don't think it's I, I know it's not a narrative. It's it's happening. So one way uh, and so my anecdotal message, I guess, to people is if you measure um, if you measure the temperature uh, over time, even even above the surface. Right. So uh, we send out balloons every day across the country that feed our forecast models. So a friend of mine that was skeptical at one point, he measured the temperature. He looked at data from what they call 850 millibars, right? So the 850 millibar mark is about 5,000 feet above the surface. So it, it's not just surface temperatures that's warming. It, it's the entire column of air, you know, in the, within, uh, right up to the top of the atmosphere that's warming. And so he looked at these temperatures and he saw that over the past 30 years, that these 5,000 feet up off the surface had climbed, had these temperatures had risen significantly. And it sort of solidified for him that, that this, is, this is ongoing. And so the, one analogy that I use is if you say you were in a greenhouse and uh, you invited people over to, uh, to, for a cookout, uh, if you if you were cooking inside of that greenhouse, if you were grilling inside of that greenhouse, that greenhouse is going to fill up with smoke uh, while you're grilling, and nobody's going to want to be there. And that is uh, that is actually what's happening now. Instead of smoke, we're just filling up our greenhouse with with heat, and and so those. Uh, as we warm all the way up to the top of what we call the boundary layer or the top of our atmosphere or, or the troposphere, as we warm all the way up to the top of the troposphere, we're warming the entire globe, even though one, e- even though certain spots may be, you know, the United States and China are obviously uh, more responsible than other locations across the globe, but it all gets stratified across the entire earth, uh, across the atmosphere. across So, the damage that we're doing uh, here in the United States, the damage that China is doing with respect to uh, to warming the atmosphere, it is something that's felt uh, universally across the globe, and it's affecting um, and we're, and we're seeing it. In fact, it's it's not necessarily our high temperatures during the day, and this is another sort of nuance that's tough to get across to people is that it's actually our overnight lows that are increasing more than our daytime highs, if that makes sense. So the, if, I, if my basic understanding is correct, when the sun is going down, we're, the planet is still retaining the heat from the day longer exactly. than it would normally. And, and part of that okay. is because uh, moisture or, or water vapor is a greenhouse gas. Everybody thinks of carbon dioxide, uh, and methane are, are the two big drivers, right? I, and, and they are, they're very important. Methane is an incredibly strong uh, greenhouse gas. Carbon dioxide is very strong. Water vapor isn't as strong as those two, but they all play a role in, in, uh, in maintaining the heat that used to escape at night. And so um, when you look at overnight lows, say in one location, say the average used to be 50 here in Texas on a certain date. Now that te- now that over that average overnight low might be 53 degrees instead of 50, and whereas the high might have only gone up 
the, the average high temperature may have only gone up, you know, a half or one degree. So it's, it's, um, it, it, and that's a nuance that's also tough to explain to people at times. Mm-hmm. No, I, I do also have to respect that the man from Texas used barbecue as an analogy for climate change. Well done. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very important to people here. That's for sure. <laughs> it's like, how can you explain? It actually goes into our next question on a, uh, what do you think are good ways to discuss climate change with people who are skeptical? Because I've worked with people who their gut reaction is to find someone who's a climate change denier and just rip into them with science and calling them the worst possible things. And obviously that feels good. I'm not going to deny that it feels good to call somebody out on something that you know is correct, but it doesn't actually help. So can you give us and the rest of the listeners some ways to actually help people who are skeptical? Sure. So from, um, from the things that I've learned and read o- over the years, it is most important to find out a way where climate change affects their day-to-day life. Um, and, you know, and, I'm, and I'm not sure exactly how you can go about doing that. Um, one, you know, I, I think part of it is understanding that it's not necessarily the daytime highs that are increasing, but the overnight lows. Uh, so that, that's one way of doing it. But it, it is, there are plenty of studies actually out there. I, I shouldn't say that this isn't even anecdotal. This is hard science that it's more of how people feel about climate change than what they actually know. And, and that, that can be, that's the human element in all of this. So if you can find a way to relate climate change to, to a person's, um, say, profession in life, or, um, or, you know, say they're a fisherman, by knowing that climate change is going to warm water over time, then maybe a certain fish you know, aren't going to be available in their location, uh, you know, 20, 30 years from now, because if the water gets too warm, then those fish are either going to die off or move or go to a different spot where that water might be cooler. So, you know, that's, that, that's one example of explaining how climate change can affect somebody's profession or their sort of lot in life. You know, another, another way to explain it is, you know, you see it, uh, there are plenty of examples in the news about houses that are falling into the water mm-hmm. right yeah uh, and uh, you know it happens up in cape cod in massachusetts all the time and so you know if your property is is slowly eroding uh over you know a decade period of time you know th- that's gonna you're gonna take notice as to why that's happening and, and why that's changing i, I want to time for my anecdotal story uh, when we were talking to a group of fishermen one of my friends uh he said that uh, when he was talking to fishermen up north on the northeast side, he pointed out, listen, are you noticing that certain fish are getting sicker at weird times? Like, are there certain diseases that are popping up earlier? And so instead of connecting it to the fish, he connected it directly to like diseases that really are only starting to appear, uh, that will usually only appear more south and now making their way north and affecting the fish and the catch. So he tied it not just to fishing, but also to the economics of, hey, climate change is making you broke. And I've always found that that narrative worked for me, attach it to their wallet and people like, Oh, well, hang on, wait, what my money? Absolutely. And, and it's the easiest way to get the point across. And if you can certainly show it over time, uh, that, you know, for instance, tornado alley is sort of, um, is the, you know, the, the lines along tornado alley are getting pretty blurry. Um, because now, um, you know, 
now across the south and southeast, you know, they're pretty much uh, they're pretty much susceptible to tornado. I mean, all of these locations have, have been susceptible to tornadoes year round anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, there is, um, you know, the tornado season is the lines between tornado season and the lines of where torna- tornado alley used to be are getting very blurry because of climate change, because now there's warmer air and warmer water almost year round available to the atmosphere in order to generate, you know, the types of thunderstorms that create tornadoes. Mm, terrible stuff. Well, again, thank you so much for getting to that science stuff, but we are a Pokemon podcast after all. So we're going to go ahead and cut. We're going to get to some Pokemon stuff. Unlike most of our guests, you are not as familiar with Pokemon, correct, Joe? That's that's right. I am not very uh, I'm not I'm not very aware of, of how Pokemon works. Uh, unfortunately, that's okay. Honestly, the science is what we want you here for. Leave the Pokemon stuff to me, so I'll explain. In Pokemon, one of the things you can do in a fight, you can attack the other opponent, but also you can give yourself a buff. You can give yourself a boost in power by changing the weather or changing your surroundings to fit your needs. So I just wanted to list off the three major weather moves and explain them to you. So the first one is a move called Rain Dance. Kind of obvious what it does just by the name. The Pokemon will find a way to seed the clouds effectively and make it rain. Now the rain has a number of different effects on different Pokemon. Uh, Some will get faster in the rain. Some will start healing a little bit better because they can absorb the water. But how would you go about making, like, again, you're an expert on cloud seeding. How would you go out making like a football-sized field of rain appear out of nowhere? Well, first of all, I wish I had these powers in my real life. (laughs) Uh, This, uh, it would be, uh, it would be very useful, I think, at times. Um, As far as producing um, uh, rainfall over a, a, football stadium, you would need a very uh, saturated environment. So you would need it to be foggy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there there is a way, though, that you could do it uh, because I've seen it, for instance, in Fourth of July celebrations. Okay. Uh, If if it is foggy out that night and there's been rain recently and you ignite fireworks, you can actually induce localized rainfall. Oh, oh, Uh, you got to explain. You, you would that. need to have the clouds present already. Uh, you you can't produce rain without without the naturally occurring clouds that are already present. Okay, so there's no way I can just pop up into a desert and just go. All right, use rain dance, and I'm going to get a thunderstorm. <laughs> that's correct. Okay, I, I just wanted to check because I think it's a really cool ability in the game, and it's one that's really useful in the competitive where people actually work really hard. There was an entire set built about making it rain, and now I'm just imagining them like, "All right, Squirtle, use Rain Dance," and then the Squirtle just looks like, "Dude, it hasn't rained yet. Calm down. Get <laughs> away." <laughs> are there any clouds? That would be my yeah. first question. Yeah, like, are there any clouds? You look. I just imagine how someone's like setting up. Like, hold on, stop the battle. Hang on, we're gonna get the gear out. You pull out like the Doppler nine thousand radar backpack. Like, okay, there are a couple clouds coming over in like twenty minutes. We can wait until then. We can get the rain dance going. 
Now, on the opposite end, there's a move called Sunny Day. does the opposite. Instead of making it rain, it makes the sunlight a lot harsher. Now, this has different effects based on what you do. Um, Pokemon which use fire-type attacks get stronger. Uh, there are even some plants that'll get a lot faster because they're able to photosynthesize a lot more efficiently. How would that be a bad thing? I can just imagine the idea of opening up a hole for the sun, but how would that be a bad thing to just cause a football-sized field of increased sunlight? That is something that I, I I'm not too sure about now. Uh, there is, um, it, you know, because you'd have to dry, you'd, you'd have to dry the atmosphere entirely um, vertically, right, from the football field, from the surface up to the top. Mm-hmm. And so, other than possibly some sort of, um, uh, you know, bomb of some kind, something to heat up and evaporate all of the water. Uh, I, I think that that would be quite a quite a bit more difficult to do uh, unless it was obvious, you know, again, already sunny and clear out. Uh, it, drying the atmosphere would be would, on a very small scale would be very difficult. Now, when you say you need a bomb to do it, are we talking like TNT, C4? Are we talking like a nuke? I, I think you're you know, on the scale of a nuke. <laughs> OK, so all I need now is a nuke. Fantastic. <laughs> right. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, nobody has access to that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, in the Pokemon world, there are technically things that are more dangerous, and they give these to children, but we're not going to talk about those this time. <laughs> I, I think it's scary enough to think that the Pokemon who can use Sunny Day are pretty much having the power of a nuclear bomb and just drying up the atmosphere. That, to me, is already insane enough. Right, right. On the last one, this one actually doesn't get used as often in the game because of its uh, negative effect. It's an attack called Hail. Pretty standard, no dancing, no daytime. It just, uh, Hail starts falling. Unless your Pokemon has ice abilities, if it's made of ice, it's going to take damage. And you've already talked about Hail before. How much damage would Hail cause? Let's say we are talking about a football-sized field of now golf ball-sized Hail. Oh, if say say it was a uh, a crop of of corn or cotton, for instance, out here, it, it could destroy the entire crop uh, for that season. Whoa! Uh, you know, five minutes of golf ball size hail uh, can knock off the you know the tops of all of the plants in its path. And if it were uh, you know full of people and they're not prepared, you know, they'd probably see some injuries, maybe not death. Uh, but you would see some injuries from people with respect to, you know, golf balls falling on their head, uh, you know, for five to 10 minutes or so as the storm passes by. But it, it does, a, the, as far as property goes, um, hail is a, is a big threat to crops in agriculture. Because it just beats down any vegetation you were going to eat the, other, the next day. Exactly. Right, right. And, you know, you don't have time to grow that back, uh, you know, within a, you know, within large scale, say, uh, agricultural operations, you know, large scale farming. And so cotton crops, for instance, out here in West Texas, it, you know, hail is a big threat to them. So what are some ways that people use to protect their agriculture, protect their livelihood from hail? Um, there, unfortunately on a, on a, on a big farm farming scale, there's really nothing you can do. Um, now there, there are small, you know, if you are, if you have a garden in your uh, yard, you know, you can put a tarp Mm -hmm. over, uh, over your crops for the night or for the afternoon, if you're expecting that to happen. 
but on a large scale, there's really not much that you can do. Huh. So, uh, I mean, from a Pokemon perspective, a lot of Pokemon will use it whenever they're running a lot of different ice types with them, or if they're trying to get a specific effect that only occurs, like some get faster because of the hail. It's just, they, the game tried to make it snow that hurt. And so they ended up with hail. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a lot of people will, there's a distinction between hail and something else that's called grapple. What on God's and, green earth uh, is grapple? Uh, it's, it's spelled G R A U P E L. And that comes during that. That'll happen more during the winter. Uh, and, and that is uh, more of a wintertime hail like feature. Um, that it doesn't grow quite as big as um, as as hail that you would see during a summertime thunderstorm, and it's more what they call a, a cold cloud process than what you may think of, say, during thunderstorms in Florida, which is a warm cloud process. Mm. Again, all of this sounds pretty terrifying, but I want you to think about: imagine that there's a bunch of ten to twenty year olds running around with Pokemon that can control the weather. And each one of them kind of operates with a different mentality. One guy wants to make it rain. One guy wants to make it hail. One guy wants to make it sunny. And they're all doing with this within uh, pretty much just right next to each other. How bad would that be if someone is literally vaporizing moisture on one side of the football field and increasing moisture and hail on the other side? Would there be any dramatic consequences or would they just cancel each other out? Um, well, I, I think, uh, you know, you're going to get a classic meteorologist response to this. It depends. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, if, if you say it were a thunderstorm and it was on the dry, on the dry side that you're trying to, uh, uh, warm and heat up, uh, on that side, accelerate what is called the updraft. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And in the, in the term, in, in sort of terms that, that people understand from when they learn science in say high school, you know, there's an equal and opposite effect, right? So heat rises and cold air sinks. Mm -hmm. So if you are warming up uh, one side of the football field and they're connected to the same cloud, the same thunderstorm cloud, you would then enhance the downward uh, acceleration on the cold side where the hail and the rain is falling. So if you're warming up the warm side, and accelerating the updraft, well, you would then in turn accelerate the downdraft on the other side where the rain and the hail are occurring. So in that sense, uh, you know, the, the, the people that are producing the hail and the rain might win out on, in, in that situation. But then on the other hand, the dryness could like cancel both of those out because they both require moisture. R right. So if you say if you heated it enough, you'd evaporate the cloud and, and you would win. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, if you added enough heat, um, you would evaporate all of the, you know, we talked earlier about that, uh, you know, 80 to 90% of the cloud that we don't use. Um, and so uh, you would evaporate all the moisture uh, if you overwhelm the cloud with the dry, with the warm and dry air. Mm -hmm. Again, that just seems like a really interesting concept because in the actual game's mechanics, uh, when two people use weather abilities or weather moves, the slowest person is the one, the person who comes out second. They're the effect that really takes it. It doesn't mix and match them. It's just kind of, oh, the guy who came second has the ability to use the sun. Okay, the weather's sunny instead of rainy. Again, it's a 
weird game mechanic, but I think it's really cool to think of like, oh, my sunny day has just made things worse. Oops. Right, right. And I'm surprised, uh, I guess my first, the first thing, again, I, you know, I'm not too familiar with the game, but there's no lightning being uh, used by any of the characters? Oh, we're getting the lightning. That's the next one. Oh. With, um, oh, with okay. Rainy Day, it brings up like just torrential downpour. But with Pokemon, there are, uh, I wanted to talk about two Pokemon specifically because of their connection to the weather. One of them is Pikachu. Everyone's seen a Pikachu at some point. I've heard of Pikachu. Yes, everyone. That's all I need. My mom would just call them, oh, Lucas, are you collecting the Pikachus? Like, mom, they're not just Pikachus. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the things that Pikachu is known for, if you look into the Pokedex, where it gives you all the Pokemon's like basic biology, it's that if you get enough Pikachus together, it will cause lightning storms. So if you got like the idea of getting enough electrical output somewhere to cause a lightning storm, would that work or would that just be a lot of wasted energy? Well, all right. So, um, you know, there, there's this saying that lightning doesn't strike twice in the same location, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that, is that is actually not correct. Uh, I have, so I'm also a storm chaser as well. And so I, I've watched storms, uh, you know, I've sat once, say, the, the worst part of a storm clears through and you're done chasing for the day, I, you know, I've stayed and sat and watched lightning before. And you, you'll see a, a lightning strike a radio tower time and time and time again. You know, that's because it's 600 feet up in the air, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that's why they say, for instance, if you're outside and there's lightning, get indoors. Don't get underneath a tree uh, or anything like that, because that tree is, you know, four to five times, if not 10 times taller than you are. And so you're basically standing there uh, right next to a lightning rod. You'd be better off laying flat in the ground away from anything. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I remember I, I was working as a meteorologist in West Virginia, and I remember a story about, I guess, one thing that, um, that cows will do is they will, you know, naturally try and find their way under a tree to get out of the rain or the hail. Uh-oh. And so they'll they'll start they'll start collecting underneath a tree. Well, unfortunately, what happened this time that I was working in West Virginia is a, that tree got struck by lightning and it killed a dozen cows that were standing underneath that tree mm. uh, because of you know the electricity that 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 uh, shot through them as a result of being underneath the tree. Mm. So uh, you know the the saying that we use in the weather services. Um, when lightning, uh, when thunder roars, uh, get indoors. Oh, it rhymes. Right? So, so we have to listen. Yeah, they, they try to find rhyming, uh, you know, rhyming words for their sayings. <laughs> uh, Turn around, don't drown is another one yeah. uh, when, for, for flooding. And so uh, the, the idea, you know, if you are in your house or say in your car, every, again, this is sort of a, um, a they, everybody seems to think that it's the rubber on their tires that that keeps them safe from lightning when they get in their car that's not actually the case it's the steel frame of the car that when you it's the um it's the birdcage effect and mm -hmm. so what happens if you're in your car and lightning were to strike it it actually spreads the electricity all around the frame of the car instead of putting it on you yeah there's a great there's a great exhibit actually at the Boston Science Museum uh, where they Ooh. show the where they show the birdcage effect. There, a guy will get up 
inside of, uh, you know, a, a, a man, a, a person size uh, birdcage. And they'll start, mm-hmm. they'll start uh, striking it with electricity. And it shows how that, how the electricity spreads around the birdcage instead of striking the person. That's cool. I need to get out there. Yeah. Now, the other Pokemon I wanted to talk about, and I sent you a picture of it in the document, is a cast form. Just this cute little cloud, cute little cloud. Now, this Pokemon, unlike some of the others, was actually made in a lab in the game. So it's a man-made Pokemon. And its whole thing is that it adapts its body to the weather. When it gets too sunny, it gets a sunnier body. When it gets rainy, it's built to resist the rain. When it's hail, it's built to resist the hail. So... Obviously, that would be really, really cool to see in modern technology. How far is modern technology, I mean, not from creating mini clouds that are your friends, but how far is technology from actually being able to adapt more to the weather? Well, I I don't think we're that far uh, along, unfortunately. There is one thing, though, that sort of um, sort of that I can think of that that speaks to that somewhat. And that is uh, UV protected clothing uh, oh. that golfers uh, you can buy uh, for for golfing, right? So uh, instead instead of you know if, if it's a short sleeve shirt, you still have to apply sunscreen. Uh, but there are clothes out there now that are you know protect you know to some extent. I'm not sure exactly how much that will protect you from uh, from UV rays. Also for yeah. flying. Uh, you can you can find clothes uh, that protect you uh, because you're you're not uh, you're not immune to UV even if you're indoors or, or in a uh, or on an airplane you know you're still you're still exposed to some radiation um, mm-hmm. you know from flying that during the day that you otherwise wouldn't be say you were doing it at night and mm-hmm. um, and so. Uh, there is uh, there there is some clothing out there to protect you during the sun. As far as rain or or hail, hail certainly not. Uh, but you know there there is there is rain gear again for golfers. I I guess uh, golfers tend to be now that I'm sort of thinking this off the top of my head right now. Golfers tend to be pretty sensitive to the weather, right? So it yeah, makes sense that some of their gear uh, would would sort of reflect that. Never on my life would I ever assume that golfing could be useful to science, and here I am. <laughs> For sure, I've always assumed the worst. I've always assumed the worst, but at least with the increased climate change that we are seeing, people are adapting more to the extreme weather, coming up with more creative ideas to deal with it. Like just with the from what I've heard and what I've seen read on climate change, a lot of the effort is focused not just on trying to halt the effects, but also to protect ourselves from the effects that we can't avoid. Absolutely. And, it, and it's, um, it's really important that we start thinking about these things moving forward, because um, I, I believe we're getting close to the tipping point if we're, if we're not already there. All right. Now, the last question I wanted to ask you, because we are starting to run low on time. Uh, we always ask this of anyone we're interviewing, and if they're a biology person, we ask them what animal they would like to see in the game. If we ask a plant person what plant they would like to see. But your case is different. Um, with your knowledge of weather and climate, what kind of concept or what kind of weather phenomenon would you like to see put in these games? Because what we've been teaching for years is that when you put something cool in these games, people will look up the real thing based on it and learn a bit about it. So if there's anything you could think of putting in the game based on weather. Well, so I guess uh, the, the, the first thing that pops into mind is what they call the cumulonimbus cloud. 
and okay. uh, in in Latin it uh, that translates to the mother of all clouds, um, and so cumulonimbus clouds are the thunderstorm clouds, and they have a very distinct look. Uh, they have uh, you know uh, they're very uh, they're vertically you know very uh, uniform. They're large, and then they have what they call an anvil top, which is something that you'll see. You know, if it's say it's moving uh, to the east, the anvil will spread uh, off to the west at the top of the cloud, but you'll see a very strong vertical structure as it's moving to the east. And so mm. it's a very familiar cloud. I think, you know, a lot of people would would recognize it, maybe not knowing the, uh, you know, the Latin term for it, uh, but it's called the cumulonimbus cloud. And, and it's the cloud that is responsible for producing uh, thunderstorms and eventually, if they get large enough and strong enough, producing hail and tornadoes. Okay. Yeah, there are um, moves and attacks in the games that actually get stronger, like a move called Hurricane that gets stronger in the rain. But I think that would be really cool for our little cloud friend here, Castform, if he could get an upgrade later on just to get, if you put him near electricity and, and the rain at the same time, he gets a whole lot bigger, a whole lot more terrifying. Oh, and I could, I can definitely see that. The uh, the ironic thing with respect to my research is uh, with the sharks, is that uh, I have found that sea breezes, which are known for being in fair weather and very nice weather that people enjoy, are out enjoying the water. It's actually the sea breeze though that draws the sharks closer to shore. It's probably a bigger scientific process than than we could get into here uh but mm. uh it, you know it's not the most exciting phenomenon out there but sea breezes are actually uh, a pretty important part of of uh the uh, of the process or of the environment around which i'm researching right now but i think more widely these cumulonimbus clouds would be pretty neat to add to the game I think that would be now the sea breeze alone. Once your research is concluded and everyone knows about it, and if you find the information correct, that would be a really cool thing to add to the game too. Of where the sea breeze is actually brings more fish type Pokemon and more crab type Pokemon closer to you. Like, oh, the sea breeze is picked up, and now there's more life in the area than there was the previous day. Exactly, so that's exactly how it works. And you'll be the first people that I speak to about it when uh, when we get the results of our objective analysis, which is hopefully coming soon. I cannot wait, and I would love to record that conversation. But we're now, we are just about out of time. So I did want to ask, if we wanted to learn more about the National Weather Service or you or your research, where would we like to go? And don't worry, we'll put the links and stuff in the description. Sure. Um, well, obviously, your local, um, if you just, if you just uh, type in National Weather Service for whatever town you live in, uh, it'll take you uh, the link, you know, you Google National Weather Service um, and, and the name of your town. It'll bring you exactly where you need to be. I find that, you know, our, our forecasts really are, uh, you know, all of our data is is what the, the foundation of our data is what is put into all the telephone apps and all of that. And so that's why mm. we give it away for free, actually, is so that um, companies can use our data for free in order to make profit on their own and possibly add value to our forecast. And, and there are people out there doing that. And so, um, you know, that's one way of doing it. Um, as far as my research goes, I guess I don't really have much out there yet. Uh, and maybe that's something I need to think about. 
Uh, again, we're sort of waiting for some objective analysis to come back, hopefully soon. Um, but I, I was on a documentary on Nat Geo called uh, Forecast Shark Attack that people are, you know, w- might enjoy watching. Uh, they, they did a documentary back in 2019 on my work with Dr. Skomal. Um, and oh, so, cool. yeah, so people can go see that. Again, it's called Forecast Shark Attack. Um, but yeah, as far as the National Weather Service goes, it's, it's a really easy website to find and to navigate. All right. Well, Joe, you have been more than helpful. Thank you so much for stepping into my world of Pokemon. And thank you for introducing us to the world of weather. This was a fan request. Like someone wanted to know about the weather and more about some weather Pokemon. So thank you for them. And thank you for the rest of our fans. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. We hope to see you again. Take care. For sure. Have a good one. All right. Well, thank you both Joe and Lucas for that wonderful, wonderful interview. We're coming up to the wrap up. So at this point, uh, we want to give a shout out to our newest Patreon, Josh. Thank you so much for uh, your contributions to the show. You help keep us running. Thank you to all of our Patreons as always. And we also want to give a shout out to Pokemon Crossroads. Uh, they've been doing a podcast appreciation month for the month of July. And so they featured us on there in a couple of their articles, but they've also been doing some listener feedback articles. And so we want to give a shout out to our, our listeners that have been a part of that. So thank you all for being a part of the community and, uh, and, uh, sharing feedback for us and, and take, and as always, another way that you can do that, um, is to leave a review in your podcasting app of choice uh, that helps others find the show. It helps us with the rating systems and, and all that. And so thank you all so very much. Uh, if you're doing GoFest, be safe, have fun, and take care. We'll see you next time.